Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. <laughs> cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Did you tell me you built a time machine? Is that a DeLorean? Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Annie Goodman, will be joining us hopefully in a couple of weeks. She is recovering from her recurrence. We wish her all the best from her secret underground bunker in an undisclosed location. Not okay. That's 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Fuck, huh? Time to get physically, my folks. Because the stupid cancer show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. Um, Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, an exclusive with author Dr. S. Lachlan Jane. Join us for an exclusive chat with the genius Stanford professor of anthropology, Dr. S. Lachlan Jane, author of Malignant, How Cancer Becomes Us. She's a returning champion to the show. Uh, this book explores why cancer remains so confounding despite billions of dollars being spent looking for a cure. And Survivor Spotlight right here live in studio Cancer is my guru blogger, Kathleen Emmett. And I am Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SCRadio. Okay. All right. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Sir. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. We're going Jewish. We always, we always resort to uh, Judaism. Speaking of, of crazy accents, my daughter watches a show called Peppa Pig. 
mm-hmm. which is a British show on Nick Jr. Okay. And they, they have a very strong, like, Cockney accent as mm-hmm. a pig family. And it's a pig family. It's a pig family. <laughs> and, you know, family tend to have Cockney so accents. the daughter is like, you know, mummy, mummy, you know, <laughs> mummy, fucking mummy. Yeah. Oink, oink, mummy. Yeah, so now <laughs> Hannah's walking around going, mummy, Aww. mummy. Oh, boy. Daddy, mommy. I'll take her to London next time yeah, I go. You should do That's that. so cute. Anyway. You should raise her British. Yeah. So speaking <laughs> of my daughter, her grandmother, my mother, mm-hmm. Rosalind Dina Greenswine. Roz. Is, uh, I forgot Banner. Rosalind Dina Banner Greenswine, <laughs> by Facebook status. Uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. You get special round of applause for being my mother. You have been giving birth to me. And having had been given birth to by your mother, um, Something thousand years ago today. She really accomplished a lot. Yes. Yep. It's been a tough life. Mm-hmm. But uh, we give her all 33 years. All of 33 it. years of it, exactly. <laughs> yes. so happy birthday, mom. We love you. She is at the Borgata tonight, having dinner with my father at the old homestead. Okay. Uh, in Atlantic City. So shout out to them. Um, and I read, on, I read on Facebook she's trying not to lose the house. Well, put it on not, red. Well, put it on it, red. My children's inheritance is gone. So you know, she's working <laughs> on her current assets now. Nice. Okay. Not a future asset. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, interesting weekend for Maureen Sweet. Yes, I traveled. Maureen New York was house. not enough. I did <laughs> left the house this weekend, guys. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Update. Um, I was down in Orlando, Florida, not just going to Disney World, but also going to Disney World at C4YW, um, a annual conference that is held by the Young Survival Coalition in Living Beyond Breast Cancer travels around the country. And this was, we learned this weekend, the last year of C4YW uh, brought together about, I don't know how many, 500-ish breast cancer patients and survivors. We'll, um, we'll go with that number. We'll, we'll go with roughly 500 um, for a really great weekend. So I got to meet a whole lot of young people, people that are you know older than our age range, but still really had, that our message still really resonated with them, made a lot of new friends, saw some old friends, had a very, very good time. And what was your takeaway? My takeaway was that everybody should go to OMG. But um, also, like, just that... And, and, it's, and it's becoming something. That OMG is becoming something? C4YW. C4YW, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, Jen, um, I reached out it is, to Jen. It is certainly becoming something. Yeah. Uh, I believe YSC tweeted over the weekend that yeah. they are going to do an event in Houston in 2015. That is correct. Um, but I think the takeaway really is that social connection is incredibly important. Um, just being around other young survivors, other young advocates, be that at OMG, at C4RW, at any conference, if you can get there, absolutely do it. Um, they take place, you know, OMG's in Vegas. We have one in New York. They're having one in Houston. They're all over the country. Find a place to, you know, get with your people. And it's a big deal, too. The fact that YSC is choosing to go in their own direction, I think, speaks to their sort of their gumption and really trying to reinvigorate the young adult cancer base. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you've noticed, I've been there many times, it's not terribly a young adult cancer event. Right, yeah. I mean, there are certainly many young people there. I spoke to many women in their 20s and 30s, um, but there were certainly plenty that had aged out, as you are about to. Right? Yes, in three months. <laughs> three months. Yes. Actually, what's that, a 24? So March, April, yeah, three months and five days. Yeah. I will be 40. Not that we're counting down. No. Mm-mm. The atomic <laughs> clock on your pebble watch right now. Right, exactly. right. I don't so you're, have a you're nearing the peak of the hill. No, I think I give Maureen credit. This is your first time solo. This was my first time solo. I was very and nervous. You've done good. 
I did my best. You sold Thank out you of our everyone. stuff. Yeah. You, you, you set up the whole shop. Yeah. You laid out all the merch. Yeah, I put up our big backdrop thing all by myself, yeah. wearing heels. That How'd was the go? worst idea I made. That was the, the pinching that's involved in the... Uh, the pinching involved in that was, you know, a bit difficult, yes. but I, I managed. Yeah. For those who have never seen a conference banner, there's two things that connect, and then you have to pinch them to separate them to collapse it. Yes. And there are about, like, 20 things that you have to do that, yes. too. It's and you, you should prepare for blood loss most of the time. At least, like, a blood blister in your finger. Yeah. You know, I didn't bleed. I did not bleed once. I was very proud of myself. Um, but, yeah, no, I talked to a lot of great people, sold some hoodies. A lot of you have my business card out there, so send me emails if I told you to email me. Wow, very nice. Excited to make some new friends. No, that's, that's good stuff. I'm really glad you went. You did a great job. And uh, mm-hmm. now we know you can go without anyone going with you. Yes. Awesome. I can cross the street by myself. Yes, yes. And I'm like, <laughs> take off the training wheels. Yes. And as if you're not done traveling. Oh, yeah. I'm not even going to unpack my suitcase. No, no. You and Allie, our VP programs, and I are headed off to San Antonio. San Antonio. Coming for you. Speaking of young adult cancer conferences, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us about the TAYA? Yes, the Texas AYA Oncology Conference. This is a relatively new conference. I don't know if it's the first year. They've had a few of them already. Um, but it's for it's out of Methodist Hospital down in Texas um, and brings together... I think primarily advocates down there. There's a lot of nurses and doctors getting continuing medical education, um, but there will be some survivors in attendance as well. So it's just another small-scale version of, you know, bringing young adults together and advancing the adolescent and young adult cancer movement. And we're very excited that that's happening, and that's happening in more parts of the country now. So kudos to Jaime Estrada, Dr. Jaime Estrada, who's organizing it, and his team yep. down at Methodist. You're doing a great job, and we are very excited to see you. You got the best part. I did forget the best part. I'm not just speaking. You are performing. Yes, I am. Scribbling. Scribbling. <laughs> yes. If you want to hand out Ambien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the Xanax be gone. Yeah. Oh, be, he's performing that during lunch, too. Everyone's going to be done for the next They'll be day. digesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't given a concert in a very long time, and it's nice to be able to have that opportunity. Yeah, and Matt's also launching his brand new keynote. Yes, my brand, brand new, new keynote, keynote presentation. Um, Making its debut. Yes, it's, it's all colorful now in, in, in letter, um, letterbox format. Oh, it's, a, it's in technicolor now. Technicolor and letterbox <laughs> format, yes. Very cool. And, and um, um, stereo, not mono. Oh, interesting, yes, exactly. interesting. It's be interesting. On an FM station. <laughs> Just a quick uh, side note here. We want to congratulate Son, T-H-O-N, which is the... Um, University, UPenn. Remember well, Sean Shapiro? Yeah, yeah, our good friend Sean Shapiro. Sean Shapiro here from mm-hmm. here in the city. Shout out to Sean, great volunteer. Thon uh, is an annual fundraiser at UPenn where the students... UPenn or Penn State? Whatever it is, I'm wrong. I'm going to find out. Uh, you talk about Thon and I will confirm okay. what university I, is it Penn State? At. You might be Penn. You're right, it's Penn Sean State. Sean Shapiro is Penn an State. alum of Penn State. Yeah, it's yeah. Penn State. Okay. <laughs> we also had a, uh, a stupid cancer volunteer celebrity engagement. We did? Yes. What? Mars and Lisa. Oh, that's right. Yes, congratulations yeah. to, what is his actual last name? Tinoco. Right, Mars, Mars Tinoco and Lisa. Yeah, mm-hmm. also tough to you guys. That's awesome and amazing, and we, we wish you well and only health, love, joy, happiness. And There's a rumor that his name is actually Mario. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so Thon, We're on to you, Mars. Thon is a, um, it's like a dance-a-thon that they host. And they raised $13.3 million wow. this year in like one weekend. That's highly impressive. Yes. 
Good job, Penn State. It's like a shop to a drop dance thon and everyone has to raise money to see how long they'll last. You should have went. You could have met your goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My cardiac Who's that last 20 pounds? Yeah. In, in an hour and a half. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. I have one more announcement before we get to our guests. Um, this is in recognition and with love with Annie Goodman, our, our, our fabulous co-host here, that uh, March 3rd coming up here is Triple Negative Breast Cancer Day. Um, it is the uh, only national event dedicated to raising both awareness of triple negative breast cancer and raising funds that advance research and provide support for this incredibly elusive type of cancer. Uh, triple negative breast cancer has no targeted treatments and can be very aggressive, as we've seen with Annie. Uh, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Day is made up of grassroots events from coast to coast, many of which are hosted online. And everyone here at Stupid Cancer is proud to support TNBC Day, and we encourage all of you to host your own TNBC event uh, in honor of Annie Goodman, our uh, fabulous uh, uh, co-host here on the radio show, Um, and to support them and support Stupid Cancer with the Young Other Cancer Movement. Information can be found at TNBC Foundation, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation.org, or visit the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation on Facebook. Very exciting, very important, very, very important. We send out love and hugs to Annie every single day, every single hour. So good, good stuff. Uh, all right, now it is time for our first guest. You get the hit music. <laughs> that one is called My Hit Music. Hit Shut up, from the 90s. <laughs> Kathleen Emmett is a 37-year-old stage 4 colon cancer survivor diagnosed two and a half years ago. She began writing as part of Sloan Kettering's Visible Ink program, and she can be found blogging and doing all sorts of crazy things online at... Cancer is my guru. Cancer is my guru.com. Please welcome to the Super Cancer Show, Kathleen Emmett. Hi. We love having in-studio guests. It's always um, so much more interesting to have face contact and eye contact and gestures and whatnot. But I'm uh, glad you live here. As am I. Yeah, so Thanks that you can actually me. be here yeah. in studio. <laughs> and I think our first date was on Twitter. Is that correct? It was. It was. I had tweeted an article that I wrote, and you responded with, um, I think you said something like you kind of, I, I, was, I had embodied the spirit of, of living with, Cancer. Yes. Or, yes. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm always really impressed by people who are not in any way ashamed to be an open book about yeah. their story yeah. and to take to the web to make that difference and be disruptive and challenge the staid perception that cancer is a hush. Mm-hmm. It's not really anymore, but still the perception. On before the show, we were talking about your your TSA experience. Yeah. Uh, how someone <laughs> thought they could catch cancer by patting you down. Um, but it, it's sad that it's still there. But I definitely think we moved the needle on that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's no longer the the dreaded C word. Right. Um, you know, said in hushed tones. Uh, I I really feel very open talking about it, uh, not an iota of embarrassment or, or shame or it. The only part is seeing how uncomfortable it makes people. That's what I kind of wanted. People or like family? People. You know, my family's cool with it. I mean, right. you know, they've been dealing with it for the past almost three years. Yeah. And um, it's, it's strangers when they find out and they give you that sad cancer face. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, you poor thing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 colon cancer. Oh, my uncle had that. God rest his soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. That's what I really want to Uncle work Harold on. died last year from that <laughs> Oliver Shalom. Okay. <laughs> All right, so take us back two and a half years ago. Okay. Life was good. You're working. You got your yeah, things life in order. Was, life was good. Uh, life was crazy, uh, but life was good. Um, and I wasn't feeling well. And I went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they told me, uh, as you know, you know, you're too young. It, you know, you have uh, an ulcer. Maybe you have a GI problem. Take peppermint oil. Did you oil. have cramps or what was I it? had, I just didn't, you know your body. Right. You know your body, and I just didn't feel well. And I knew something was wrong, and I kept... Oh, one day I was coming home and and I I passed basically passed out on the on the stairs of the Long Island Railroad and I said no. It happens to me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's Kenny's excuse? Um, I though was not drinking, so there was no excuse. <laughs> and uh, I came home and I was running a fever and I said okay, I, I need to go to another doctor. And he told me I told him about my my family history my mother had colon cancer, my grandmother had colon cancer. And he said, yeah, you're, you're still too young. Yeah. And I said, no, I really need a colonoscopy. And, wow. And he, he performed it and came in and drew the curtain and said, uh, we found something. And sent me for an emergency CAT scan where they saw that it uh, not only did I have this seven centimeter mass in my colon, but I had 10 lesions on my liver. Wow. Yeah. So no amount of peppermint oil. <laughs> I'm going to help that. Well, you don't know my story in the sense, but everyone knows I've said this for years. I was given Robitussin for brain cancer. Oh, well. Didn't work. The Tussin cured everything. <laughs> Go to the Chris Rock. Tussin, put a little Tussin on it. it cures everything. Didn't work for me. Didn't work for me. But you had mentioned um, when we talked before the show about how this doctor gave you like six months or 18 months Eight. to live. And you're like, yeah. no, thanks. I'm going to go uh-huh. see another. Yeah, yeah. We also talked about Chris Carr. Um, but Chris Carr, what I, what I really respect, one, one of the things she talks about is how when she went to go see her first doctor, he's an employee of Save My Ass Incorporated, <laughs> which is yeah. your company. Yeah. And yeah. it sounds like you followed that same instinctive trajectory. Absolutely. Um, the day that... that I was given the prognosis of, of 18 months um, was the day that this other doctor that we had been chasing had called and said, um, send us over her scans. So the, the real message, I think, is find the doctor who specializes in what you have. Find the doctor who is bored by your cancer, right. who has seen it so many times. Um, and that's the doctor that I have now, and, and she's the one who, who really helped save my life. So how did you go from this apparently insensitive asshole yeah. to this other doctor? What, what, how did you go about trying to make sure that this new person you were trying to find wasn't mm-hmm. anything like this other person? Um, my husband did a lot of the, the legwork, and he was reaching out to a lot of different people, telling them uh, what kind of cancer that I had, and he heard from from this person oh my cousin had that she went to this doctor oh you know my father had that he, and it, it was all circling back to this one particular doctor and uh, you know we looked her up and and what she did and um, it, I just knew I just knew this is my person um, she's not the warm and fuzzy 
she's not the kind who gives you hugs, but she's very black and white, and, and she does what she needs to do. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about the, uh, the, the people at Sloan, Sloan Kettering. So let's talk about that. This is a show focused on young adults. You yourself are a yeah. young adult. Mm-hmm. Colorectal cancer yeah. is typically an old person's uh, cancer. Yep. Um, you had a family history that they seem to ignore. Mm-hmm. And yet here you are now with a real doctor yeah. who's taking you seriously. Yeah. What types of treatments did you go through? And talk us through the ordeal, the oh shit couple of first months. Um, the... The first day that I was diagnosed, it, it, it hit me, you know, it's surreal. It's, right. it's absolutely surreal. And I remember uh, between getting the diagnosis and going um, and meeting with the first oncologist, my husband and I went uh, to, a, to a bodega and, and he goes to grab a Diet Coke and, and he said, do you want one? And I said, no, that, that shit gives you cancer. And he just looked at me and I said, oh, too soon for jokes? Like, I, I did, just I was kind of there, but I wasn't there. And um, they started me on a really, really aggressive chemotherapy that got me very sick. Right. And I uh, lost my hair and I lost, like, a ton of weight. And um, then uh, he had told me I was inoperable. So there was... There was nothing to do but chemotherapy. Wow. Okay. And then I went to Sloan and she said, yeah, now we're going to take out half your liver and, you know, a portion of your colon. And, and then I went back on chemotherapy and then I had a recurrence while on chemo. Wow. After, yeah. After. So were you actually no evidence of disease yeah. while on treatment? Yeah. Yeah. After I had the surgery, um, they had gotten everything. They told me they had gotten everything. And then I had the recurrence, and then they put me on a new chemotherapy. And then I uh, had no evidence of disease again, and they took me off chemo. Right. This was in November of 2012. Okay. And then I had a a scan, and it was clean, and it was like, oh, my gosh. But were you terrified because it was clean already in the past? I was absolutely terrified. Um, because chemotherapy becomes like mother's milk. Right. You become really reliant upon it, and there's this sense of safety in it. Even though I had had the recurrence, it, it was just, I need to be on chemo. Well, that's the thing. They say that your last day of chemo is the most frightening. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the safety net's gone yeah. in that sense. I had a, uh, a healing hoot nanny, which, you know, is this big end of treatment right. party, but there was this part of me that was just scared to death. Right about ending treatment. And so when I had the next scan in April and it showed that I had four very small lesions on my, on my lungs, um, it, it's kind of when the thing that you fear the worst, the, the most in life occurs, then there's nothing else to fear. Right. It was just like, okay, that was my nightmare. And, and where do I go from there? Right. All right, so then talk us through these, like we talk about the what's next, the new normal, we hate mm-hmm. these terms. Yeah. All right, so your, you, your, your job, did you state your job? No, I left. Okay, did your, I left. you're married? I am married. All right, did your, have, did your spouse stay? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah, so yeah. these things work. Yeah, these things work. <laughs> so these are really serious issues no, with abandonment and, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Many, uh, I know many people whose who's marriage uh, fell apart. During, it's a lot of stress. Yes, of course. It's a lot of stress and a, and a lot of 
especially because I stopped working. It was a lot of financial responsibility well, on course. my husband. So how did you, so let's talk about HR. How did you go to your employer and say, by the way, I might be dead in 18 months? <laughs> well, as it turned out, I was uh, quitting anyway because I, the, the stress, I felt like it was the stress and, and I wasn't feeling well and, and I thought it was the job. It has to, it right. has to be this because I'm 35 years old. What else could it be? So I was quitting anyway. So HR really lucked out um, because um, they were in the process of looking for someone to replace me anyway. So that that wasn't really an issue. So you you mentioned that your your grandma had it, your mom had it. Yeah. You have it. Yeah. That's pretty... Yeah. uh, Yeah. You can't really talk about anything but genetic links here. Absolutely. Have you had any conversations about genetic counseling for, and you, you have a son, correct? I do. I yeah. have an 18-year-old son. Right. So is he now at risk, you know, rhetorically, metaphorically, mm-hmm. euphemistically, whatever, and, and does he have the right to get scanned for what, a gene that you may not know you have? I have spoken to people at Sloan about genetic testing. It's something that uh, we're definitely going to look into. I definitely want my son, he and I have had the conversation about how diligent he needs to be now about his health. I have a sister and a brother, and I have uh, five nieces who also need to be on top of this. Of course, of course. And uh, my sister goes for colonoscopies every two years, and thank God she's been clean. But it's no joke, and it's something that we all have to take seriously and all have to be very, very aware of. So let's talk about patient advocacy. You mm-hmm. know, do you think that you had this pre-embedded personality to give you this wear-it-on-your-sleeve, no-holds-barred attitude mm-hmm. about beating it, or I don't like the military, yeah. but like fighting it or winning it or whatever you want to call Do you even like the word survivor? Um, the word that I hate is terminal. Okay. That's the one word that makes the hair on my neck stand up because who are you to tell me <laughs> terminal? What does that word even mean? What does it mean? I mean, it, Newark, LaGuardia. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the only place that it should be applied. Um, survivor. It's a gray area because what defines a survivor? Uh, I know plenty of people who who are living with cancer who I would consider to be absolute survivors. So what's what's the definition of it? Right. Yeah. So what has been the response to your writings? Did you ever really see yourself as a writer up until this point? I hadn't, and only when I got uh, when I received my first paycheck, a first my first check for, for a piece that I wrote was I, did I sit back and go, oh, my God, I'm a writer. I am a paid writer now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. Sucker. <laughs> Take that. English lit teacher told me I'd be yeah. nothing. Uh-huh. Um, but what writing has, has meant to me, and I think it, it, it's even to people who don't have cancer, so many people have come up to me, and it's, Okay, the word inspiration, when people tell you, you're such an inspiration, I go, ah, that makes me uncomfortable because... Right. 
Well, you didn't ask to be an inspiration. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, how else am I supposed to handle this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people who curl up and, and go into the fetal position. I understand that. But that's never been my, you know, pregnant at 18. All right, I'm going to rock this. You know, yeah. so it's kind of, uh, oh, you dropped out of school? No, I'm going to go back and get my degree. So, yeah, I guess it's always been part of my DNA right. to go, eh, no. So you mentioned that you, you kind of went about this alone, not knowing any peers in your age group yeah. until you attended a, an event in upstate New York. I did. I went to Chris Carr's uh, Living Well with Cancer at Omega Institute, which was a place that I'd uh, gone to before. And, um, you know, I started reading Chris's books and really connected with someone of, of my age who, who had cancer. And then I went and I met so many women who were, were living with it and thriving and overcoming it. And it was so important to, to see I'm not the only one, to know that there were other survivors out there, to know that there were other people, for lack of a better term, battling this disease right. um, and that I could do it. So then... All right, so we're out of time, but final questions. And then you, you found us. I found you. And you came to our new, I know, to the Angel <laughs> Choir. And you attended our conference here in New York City last I fall. Did. What was that like for you? You blew me away. Yeah. I, 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 I laughed. I How cried. did I compare to Omega? Oh, well, I mean, it's just a totally different vibe. <laughs> you. Yeah, of course. You didn't give me wheatgrass. No, that's right. <laughs> you should work Man, on that for next year. Wheatgrass. No, we gave you, we gave you taxi fumes. <laughs> you did, but yeah. it was amazing. and. Hearing Suleika was was there and and she spoke and you had uh, a lot of different people talking and and someone who had colon cancer so it was just like wow my people and I'm again I'm really excited to have you here in studio and mm-hmm. and this is not the last we'll be talking to you and hearing from you and, and and I really do feel compelled to make sure that you're plugged into the young adult colorectal cancer community here in the city it's mm-hmm. incredibly strong there's a lot of amazing people here trying to do some good stuff. Brilliant. That's both disease-specific and disease-agnostic. Mm-hmm. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We've been talking with Kathleen Emmett, a 37-year-old stage 4 colorectal cancer survivor, uh, diagnosed two and a half years ago. She blogs at cancerismyguru.blogspot.com. Kathleen, thank you so much. You're going to stick around for the rest of the show, right? For sure. Okay. Awesome. All right, Kenny, let's uh, hit up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. This is the hardest thing I do every week, this blurb right here. Something <laughs> could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some meetups happening in Phoenix, Arizona, and Salt Lake City, Utah. That's it? Yes, sir. Make it, it make it, it better. Is it Vegas time? Yeah. <laughs> it is Vegas time. Registration for the seventh annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is in full force. Join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, caregivers for an epic three and a half day event that will change your life forever. We mean that. Visit omg2014.org and learn uh, to learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for stupid cancer. All right, Matthew, it's always time to... I'm really doing all time. It's Kenny always has... a good time to suck up on Stupid Cancer here. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Polar Vortex, be damned, even though it's been warm lately. You'll stay nice and warm in a Stupid Cancer hoodie. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org and be proud. 
Where Stupid Cancer. And finally, Stupid Cancer is launching a mobile app called Instapeer this spring, and we're going to revolutionize cancer support forever. It's the first platform of, of its kind that will do automatic peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers uh, on cell phones anonymously and privately. It's incredibly exciting. Go to Facebook.com slash Instapeer. Follow Instapeer on Twitter or watch our video and learn more at Instapeer.org. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, I'm really stoked. Returning champion to the show. Lachlan Jane is an associate professor of the Department of Anthropology at Stanford University, so she's pretty smart. Her second book, Malignant, How Cancer Becomes Us. Uh, the book analyzes a range of material to explain a national culture that is simultaneously aiming to deny, profit from, and cure cancer. Oh, boy. The book was reviewed in Nature Magazine as Brilliant, which, of course, it is, and in Discover as Whip Smart, which I would only expect from Dr. Jane. Reviews and info on Malignant posted at malignant.us. Please welcome back to the Super Cancer Show returning champion, Dr. Lachlan Jane. Hello. Hello. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I also want to apologize for the caching of data on the Internet because your name is still misspelled even though we corrected that. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, we, we, and Google doesn't really have any emotion so, that we know of. Yeah, I know. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. A little bit of a alive. poker face, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, I'm really excited to have you back on the show. It's been a very long time, but your book is fascinating. And um, I, I'm just in love with, with everything you represent in terms of curiosity and questioning and, and the anthropology of, of, of why things happen. Um, stupid cancer is a byproduct of why things happen. And I, I just find it fascinating that, that now we're really in an age where social media complements sort of disruptive narrative and dialogue about questioning the status quo. Um, but I would love you to just uh, talk about how you first got into this crazy business and what drove you to start assessing the uh, anthropology of life, the universe, and everything, on top of the fact that you have, like, the coolest, like, PhD in, in like, social uh, consciousness or something like that, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did a PhD in the history of consciousness, a kind of interdisciplinary uh, humanities and social sciences program. Um, so I started getting into this even, you know, before I was diagnosed, I was fascinated by cancer as um, as, a, as a bigger question around, I had been writing a book on what happens when Americans get injured and how in the U.S. the law plays the role that regulation plays in other countries. So as a Canadian, I came down to the States um, in the 1990s, and people started talking about, oh, Americans, they all sue each other, you know. And I thought, well, that's good. Everyone's poking fun at that. But how exactly does that work? Like, what is the hook? You can't just say, oh, I, you know, stubbed my toe and walk into a court. So I ended up doing this vast history of product liability law in the U.S. and looked at a bunch of different kinds of um, products that were leading to these huge lawsuits. And one of them was cigarettes. And I was really interested in how for so long cigarettes caused these really obvious injuries, you know, lung cancer, you know, 95% or something of lung cancers are directly related to tobacco smoking, and yet they were for so long able to get off the hook. They weren't able to 
the law wasn't able to fulfill its, you know, regulatory regulatory potential to um, to make the injury of cancer visible. And you can see that in so many different kinds of carcinogens that we have, that there's just no way to link the inevitable injuries of cancer that we pretty much know are caused by some of the chemicals we use and the chemicals themselves. So they continue to be fully legal. Um, and so I was really interested in that. And then when I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 36, I was then kind of you know, offered another whammy because the whole world in cancer treatment was absolutely so impossibly different than what I ever could have expected from doing my research. And so at that point, I started to um, to write about it just in terms of little, nearly even just op-eds like, God, this is really fucked up. And then, oh, here's why, I think. And then I started collecting those and, you know, writing and writing and then that's what became this eventually after several more years of writing. So you beat cancer and then wrote a cancer book many, many years later. Did you ever predict that that would be your trajectory? Never. Never. <laughs> I mean, before you get cancer, right, especially as a younger person and especially, you know, you think, oh, of course I'm going to get cancer. Everyone gets cancer. But you don't really think, oh, my God, a lot of us get cancer. And some of us are actually going to be that person. Oh, oh yeah, and I guess it might really be me. It's, it's such a – I think if you don't have experience with the, with the illness, it's virtually impossible to imagine what it can possibly be like. So, so the obvious question, you, you, you are a, a previous author. Um, there are 20 or 30 billion books about cancer. Uh, what would make you want to write yet another book about cancer, and what's the differential here that someone could look at and say, ah, this isn't the woe is me dying pets commercial book about my story that you should care. <laughs> right, right. No, totally. And I can tell you, like, I actually did not – writing a book on cancer was the last thing I wanted to do. But when I started reading about the, the cancer, cancer literature, it was, it was either – I found a lot of histories, which were great. There were so many really good histories. And then a lot of the woe is me memoirs, some of which are also really amazing. And then there's a lot of stuff on what causes cancer um, from a kind of political activist perspective. And all of those were really. What? Oh, no, we lost. Oh, please tell me we didn't lose her. Dr. Jane, are you still with us? I think we may have, we have, uh, may have lost her. Well, we'll edit this in post, but I will, um, I will read a little bit from her book until we get her back on the air. We'll try to get our text to work with her. Um, so part of her book talks about how nearly half of all Americans will be diagnosed with cancer uh, or an invasive cancer, um, which is now an all-too-ordinary aspect of daily life. And through a powerful uh, combination of cultural analyses and memoir, uh, her book, Malignant, um, is a stunningly original book uh, which explores why cancer remains just so damn confounding, uh, despite the billions of dollars spent in the search for a cure. One might argue that someone is hiding the cure in a lab and a test tube in a safe somewhere. I don't particularly believe that, um, but because I, I, I know many um, senior executives in pharma whose kids have cancer, and clearly if they were hiding a test tube somewhere, they'd be using it. Um, 
So amidst furious debates over its causes and treatment, scientists generate reams of data that ultimately obscures um, cancer as much as it uh, clarifies it. And, you know, we're sort of in a, in a place now where as a cancer survivor, an anthropologist, and what so social conscious PhD, awesome title ever, you know, how can you unscramble these crazy high stakes in, 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 the, in the world? So reading across a range of material that includes history, oncology, law, economics, and literature, the book explains how a national culture <laughs> that actually, again, denies profits and aims to cure at the same time uh, entraps us in a state of paradox, and one that makes the world of cancer virtually impossible to navigate for doctors, patients, caretakers, policymakers, because there's so much mixed message. And I think going back to our, our Chris Rock conversation about the mm-hmm. um, about uh, Robitussin, there's no, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no profit in the cure. Yeah, I, uh, often I'll be at Sloan and I, I'll talk to the, the nurses and I'll say, uh, this is like Cancer Central. This is one small building, one floor, um, part of this, this whole business of cancer. Like I, I can't get over how many people are affected by it. And, right. and how much money is generated by it. Yeah, and I think, you know, talking about the navigation here, I, I think part of the, just the general dialogue that we use in the fact that, you know, we, we kind of put cancer into its separate buckets. Like this past weekend, I was at a breast cancer conference. Um, and just talking to some of the survivors, it was even difficult for them to, to navigate. I was sitting right across from the triple negative breast cancer table, and I was right next to the inflammatory breast cancer table, and there were sessions on, metastatic breast cancer and it's all these different types of things and you feel like you all fall into one bucket but you know it sometimes you can't even have a dialogue with another breast cancer survivor because you have completely different stories completely different experiences because you have two different diagnoses but publicly and in our mass communications we're still just saying it's all one giant thing Um, and I think that's difficult too and I think it's misleading and you know you hear one thing and you think it's one thing but it could be thousands i think we got her back you back yes i got so excited that i must have disconnected myself somehow <laughs> you know, well, we're going to blame the matrix and the Wachowski brothers so perfect for that. Yeah. but you were talking about uh what led you to write your book and you were talking when you fell off you were talking about the other books that you had read um and i think you were suggesting there was some sort of space that needed yeah to be so they right yeah so they tended to tended to fall within memoir, history, activism, and there wasn't anything that I could find that really brought those together to try and understand how cancer is a much broader culture. And I think we're always convinced that we should look to medicine for the answers to cancer and to figure out what cancer is and tell us when it will be cured and so on. But that's really problematic because it is so many other things um, in our culture. And by turning to medicine, we can't can't see that. And so that's what I set out to try and explore. All right. So you mentioned, again, I go back to the matrix because one of your quotes is is that cancer is everywhere and yet it is nowhere. Uh, What did you mean by that? And how could the average layperson digest that into their gray matter? Oh, yeah. Well, here in California, we have an amazing example of that because we have warning signs about carcinogens that are virtually everywhere. You buy something and you'll get a warning sign saying a product, it doesn't tell you which one, a product you know, in this purchase is known to the state of California to cause, to cause cancer. 
And it's really interesting because at the same time as you can't get enough information to make an informed decision about whether or not you want to be exposed to that um, to that product, you also don't have any choice. So you're already in the parking lot where there are gas fumes or, or whatever it is. So in that sense, you know that it's everywhere. You know it's all around you. And yet, we also very rarely have really accurate uh, portrayals of what it is to have cancer, what it is financially, physically, um, and so on. One of the only places we see that is ironically, um, the warning signs on cigarettes, so where you have these incredibly graphic images of what it is to have, to have cancer, and even more so in, in other countries. Um, um, but, you know, that's kind of an ongoing struggle is whether to, whether to have these graphic images here. And so those images are really no images at all because they're trying to be used as, um, as a threat. You know, and when you're using cancer as a threat for people to change their behaviors, you're not actually coming up with a realistic image of what it is like to, to have cancer and to live in that world. So we're, we're teetering on the edge of conspiracy theory, but like cognizant, cogent, intelligent conspiracy theory, not irrational alien conspiracy theory. Do you believe that someone's hiding a pill in a bottle in the safe somewhere, or is it really a, this conscious effort to suppress or this FDA overlord status of how we can't ever prove scientifically that things outside of allopathic medicine are valuable and work. Are you talking about cures or, or yeah. causes? Treatment. No, the actual. I mean, it's like once you got it, you know, once you got it. Yeah, once you got it. No, I don't think there's some pill out there somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I right. think. You know, if anything, you know, it's, I think it's kind of interesting to think about who funds the research and therefore what kinds of medications get, get tested. And they're definitely medications that have a lot of profit to be made from them. Um, and so things that uh, are likely to be more inexpensive and that are already available, certainly no one's interested in testing those. Um, and it's the same thing with carcinogens as well. It's very difficult to get the funding to show that atrazine or, you know, lead in the days of leaded gas uh, should be outlawed because they cause cancer. We have a system here where you're, you can completely put any carcinogen you want in the environment and, and try and get someone to prove that it's a carcinogen. Well, all of those things that are the expensive part are the things that are, are going to be hardest to do. And that's not, that's not a conspiracy. That's just the way the system is set up around, around profits to make, to make certain things more likely to happen. Right. Well, we can go back to Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker uh, from 10 years ago when he talked about that there's no money in the cure and they make you live with it and that the last thing we actually cured was polio. And, but that's kind of back now anyway. So, you know... It, <laughs> We do live in a, in, a, in a capitalistic health culture, you know, our civilization in this, in this country specifically, you know, but, but yet other countries that have socialized platforms still face the same exact level of hypocrisy or, or miscommunications or crisis or whatnot. Is there any, like, rationalizing that? Rationalizing that? No, I mean, I think it's just it has been an intractable mystery and something about our approach, you know, isn't working or there, 
you know, I don't know if people talk about it being a question of resources, but it's also where those resources are going. And we definitely need a more um, consistent kind of plan. It's a little bit haphazard at the moment. Um, and, you know, definitely more, inter more, more intervention in the, in the area of causation. Okay, so the question that I would have is, did we just screw up the planet so badly that we're going to have to live with the fact that we're giving ourselves cancer and just build a better mousetrap, like with genetics and Gattaca? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of that is a little bit of a boondoggle, right? I mean, there's always, since 1907, when people said, oh, well, just put cancer patients in the icebox and they'll be cured or... You know, tall people are more likely to get cancer. There have been, since the beginning, these promises of cure. And that's one of the things I look at in this book is these promises have never borne out except for a very few subcategories of disease. And so by looking only toward the future as a promise, we're, just, we're missing the whole, the whole way in which we're forced to live within cancer at the moment. And that's a terrible mistake, I think. It's a terrible right. mistake for people trying to make sense of it from, from within it. Like, how do I understand a prognosis? How do I understand risk? How do I know whether I should get screening? Like, those are all everyday battles that there really aren't any answers to, but there are better and worse ways of understanding what it is to live within those terrible paradoxes. Well, the system is always is, is, is stacked up against itself, too, where you're kind of... Um completely pigeonholed to use standard protocols for fear of, of um, you know, getting misdiagnosed or, or having malpractice against you. And you, you're forced to sit in this very narrow horse blinder process where there's, there can be no room for error whatsoever and you're at the mercy of double-blind studies and basic statistics. Is, is when you say you, do you mean if you're a doctor? If you're a doctor, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I found in my research is, yes, on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, the protocols aren't as clear as we would like them to be. So, in fact, medical misdiagnosis for cancer is an enormous problem. And you know this, too. I mean, especially for younger adults, right? It's been an enormous problem because there simply are no protocols for that group of people. So it's very easy to dismiss their symptoms. Um, and, um, you know, that's a huge problem, and I think that's where your organization has done such incredible work in getting the, getting the word out that this is a critical thing to understand and to look at and to take, to take seriously that physicians' ideas about what cancer is and who gets it have been, you know, inaccurate, inaccurate to the point of hundreds of thousands of people dying because right. it hasn't been looked at in a serious way. You know, and I, and I agree. I don't want to just glance over the fact that you are a young adult cancer survivor, but I'd love you to talk to our listeners about your story and what your life was like at 35 and then all of a sudden 36 hits. And, and what, what is that like to be, um, you know, in your position of academia? You know, it, it's a very different perspective, I would imagine, on working in another industry where your, your entire career is based on evidence and research, and, and here you are swept up by something that kind of has no like tangibility to it in, in a certain sense? Um, you know, I'm not ex exactly sure what you mean by the question, but there definitely were, you know, I think every profession has its own 
kind of timeline, right? Like when you're 20, you do this. When you're 30, you do this. When you, and, and when I was 35, I was supposed to be writing a second book. I was supposed to be publishing or perishing. And, you know, the, the very thing that every academic looks forward to is tenure and that kind of security. And that was exactly the moment, you know, prior to which I was diagnosed. And so the second I was diagnosed, I thought, my career is over. Like, this is it. And when you're an anthropologist, there really aren't any other things you can do when you have a PhD. Right. Like, that's it, you know. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, there was something from my training that I thought I could kind of, you know, as it were, kill the two proverbial uh, birds with the one stone. Like, okay, well, I could work on this project for my tenure case and also bring a kind of unique insight from the perspective of being an anthropologist and being trained in what are the many different ways that cancer makes sense? How does it make sense to a doctor that's different than a lawyer, that's different than a survivor, that's different from an activist, and then all of the many ways that that question gets parsed in terms of what kinds of cancer, early detection, late detection, what happens here and there in each different case. And that's what I tried to bring together in the book is, is what happens when you shatter this notion of cancer and take it from what seems to be a unified disease, or at least as one word, and actually see it as many different things, as a pathology report, as a prognosis, as, um, you know, a terrible injury that you suffer, as chemotherapy, as a randomized control trial. From all those different perspectives, it's a totally different thing. And I think one of the reasons we haven't been able to grapple with it as a culture and also in terms of thinking toward a cure is we haven't had ways to understand the huge ramifications of understanding those very different meanings so that when we come together in a law court, we think by saying cancer, we're all talking about the same thing, but we're not at all talking about the same thing. And so it's very difficult for people in the court to make any decision about, say, responsibility for a misdiagnosis or for a carcinogenic exposure and so on. And these problems just keep coming back and back and back, and we have no good way of understanding them. And that's the conversation I want to start with this book, is how can, we, how can we better understand the ways these institutions are misrepresenting this disease, cancer, and how little we know about it. As an anthropologist, um, I have minimal experience in anthropology beyond, you know, one class that I took in college. And everything um, that Matt taught you. And everything <laughs> that Matt has taught me about anthropology as an employee here at Stupid Cancer. Um, but my understanding of anthropology has always been that the study is usually conducted on a community outside of yourself that you, you know, either go to Papua New Guinea or in the case of one of my professors, she just, you know, visited Orthodox Jews in New York. Um, but it's generally done as an observational standpoint, not as experiential. So how, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but how did that, how did that affect your research, like being on the inside of this community while you were doing it? Yeah, I think that's such a good question, and it's something that I had to think about a lot while I was writing the book. Like, A, how much did I want to come out? And, mm -hmm. you know, just as an aside, like come out as a, like queer, obviously, but also as a cancer survivor, because there's this really interesting thing that happens that I've noticed around cancer, which is that whatever position you take, um, it's really easy to be dismissed. So it's really easy if you come out as a survivor for physicians to say, oh, they're just a survivor. They don't really understand the oncology. It's really easy also to, if you're, 
you know, a commentator to, for people to say, oh, well, they don't understand because they weren't a survivor. For example, I was on a radio show a couple weeks ago talking about Lance Armstrong, and two people wrote comments in saying, she doesn't understand a single thing because she hasn't had cancer. She should have to have cause She should get cancer. Like, it was basically this really interesting veiled death threat. Like, you can't understand unless you have cancer. And that's what I found when I don't come out as someone who's had cancer, is that sometimes happens. So I had to kind of, you know, figure out how I was going to deal with that a little bit in terms of writing, strategically writing, writing the book. Um, but I definitely did something that anthropologists often don't do, as you, as you point out. I used that experience not to write a memoir, but to think closely about the ways, the parts of the experience of cancer that were most confusing to me and, and take those seriously, um, you know, to, to figure out. So when the doctor gave me a prognosis, you know, it's like for the doctor, that's really obvious. It's a kind of, it's a risk. It's something that may or may not happen. But of course, for us, the prognosis, we just want to know, are we going to be dead or not? But it's a very important artifact in cancer culture because everything is built on these population statistics and randomized control trials. So you can trace back what the prognosis means in really important ways to get to that way in which, for the patient, it's this really critically important moment of confusion in which you don't know then how to plan your retirement account or what you should do next year or if you will even have next year. So what I try to do in the book is take those moments, those experiential moments, really seriously, but then do the more work that we typically think of as anthropological kind of analytic or conceptual research to figure out why that was so confusing and what the stakes are in that confusion. That's why why it's so important to take that seriously. So you could ask people to do something. I mean, let's take the been there, done that attitude out of the conversation where you don't deserve to do this if you didn't have cancer. I think that's a lot of crap. I have amazing staff members and volunteers who have not had cancer themselves, and they are every bit as passionate about this disease and this issue as, as someone who has had it. I can totally yeah. relate as a survivor myself that, yes, there are certain things that you can't, understand but it's the same thing as as being bullied or or having multiple sclerosis and if you start to cast that net where if you're not exactly like me if you haven't walked exactly in my shoes then then you're of no use to me i think that's very negative but so so what's it's your very message? unfortunate yep. right it is important so what is your message what do you want people to get out of the book what's your ask of the public uh, on a pragmatic level um i guess I think it's really important that we really start taking cancer seriously and stop looking at cancer survivors as, or people who get a diagnosis as, you know, tragic exceptions, but that we are causing cancer and we need to look really seriously about how that's so, why that's so, and how we can change that and make it not be about people who have cancer, but be about a much bigger story about what we're all doing to ourselves. Right, so that opens up a whole Pandora's box of you can only BPA-free so much and you can only non-GMO so much when the Fukushima, you know, radiation is killing all the fish in, in, in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the, the uh, um, Alaskan Bay, and we're eating that fish here in New York, and there's nothing we do about that. So where, where do you draw the reality line 
on why we're getting cancer, environmental, genetics, you know, uh, uh, carpet fresh, Monsanto, whatever you want to think or, or say, you know, how do you even start to put a framework around it for the average person? You know, I guess my answer to that is I think that work is really important. It's not so much what I've what I've looked at, what I've tried to look at is how it is kind of another way of framing that very question is like how is it that we know we're eating that fish and drinking that water and, and, and doing that while at the same time we're living in this fantasy land that thinks we can just put a pink ribbon or an orange armband around cancer and it's going to be okay. There's this kind of huge really problematic paradox that we all live in, and it has had really important consequences for how we understand cancer and how we manage cancer as a culture. And so that's what I've tried to look at, is how those management strategies then influence the ways that we understand the disease and then the people who most have, have to live it most paradoxically and with the most difficulty are people who have cancer and are going through treatments. Right. So, so, so let's talk about then. I mean, we have a few minutes left. I really, I'm really just. It's it, it's so difficult to wrap your whole head around the word cancer, even though everyone tends to think it's it's just like one disease and the public perception of it, and that there's oh you're done right yeah you, well, you know get over yeah. it you're, you're just do your thing. And I went through that, and our, our guest here, Kathleen, went through that. And it, it, it's a, this never-ending thing where, where, where maybe you really don't know what it's like until you've had it. But then how do you drill that message out to the public? And, and again, I mean, go back to Kathleen was telling me before the show uh, that she was at the airport getting screened, and she had to explain to the TSA agent about one of her peripherals. And the TSA agent's like, um, I have a cold. I'm not going to go near you. You know, like, like you're going to give her cancer. If we're still living in an age where it may not be the whisper campaign, but people think it's transmittable, you know, how far do we really have to go to, to do what needs to be done? Do you think maybe she was trying to protect the person? I have a cold. I don't want you to get it because you have cancer. We were trying to debate what her intentions were, but the way I was told, and maybe Kathleen wanted to just chime in on that. Yeah, um, it, it, it was a, she didn't even want to, come near me um but and even before she had expressed that she had a cold uh when she felt my port and i had to explain what it was she she was taken aback and kind of took a a few steps back like i was contagious so then when she made a comment about the cold i was just oh okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 no totally and so there's that response there's also people you know, can be incredibly cruel around it, you know, like that's your problem and I'm not going to help you out by, you know, putting you in a seat that's not beside a child with a cold, for example, when you're going through chemotherapy or something like that. Um, what was the question again? What we do with that? Well, we have, the, the question was really along the lines of that it, cancer is, like you said, it's everywhere and nowhere. It is such a complicated, overwhelmingly challenging thing to wrap your brain around, but yet the average layperson just thinks it's some quick and dirty cure thing. And how do you make sense of that if your goal is really to build more awareness and or what is the purpose of awareness? 
Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's such an interesting question. I think there's been a lot of, there's so much wrapped up there, too, in terms of why that happens. So one thing, people are terrified of cancer, right? Rightly so. It's fucking terrifying. So, you know, if you're really scared of something, you're not going to want to look at it closely. So, you know, okay, fair enough. Then we have a lot of people who want you to think about it as much simpler than it is because they want you to go to their hospital because they can treat you or they want you to, um, you know, go to their look good, feel good class and, you know, wear a wig so your friends could feel better or they want you to not worry that your cigarettes are going to kill you or, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot invested in that idea that it's a really simple, simple disease. So we're struggling against a lot, but I think absolutely to the more we can talk about the complexities of it and that it's just not one thing, and by thinking of it as one thing, we're missing out on this whole opportunity to understand the ways that so many people are living and dying in this country, you know, it can, it can only be a good thing, right? Agreed. Agreed. Well, we're almost out of time, but I know Maureen wanted to really delve into one of the more complex questions on your list, and we're looking forward to your answer. Yeah, well, firstly, kudos on writing this book. I am completely fascinated by your perspective and the idea of just cancer as culture is a whole new perspective. I mean, I've been working in this field for four years now, and I never even thought of it this way. So thank you for bringing this perspective. I think it's incredibly important, um, and I'm really glad that you wrote this book. But on the, last, on the list of questions that you provided, the very last one is a little bit obscure, and I'm really interested in it. Um, what are the two things you would change I would like to know your answer to that. Oh, yeah, because everyone asks me what I would change, so I thought I'd maybe mm-hmm. limit it to two, but I can't remember which two I was thinking. But a couple of things I would change is, one, I would um, I would make it so that, yeah, we can still have marches. They can be really good fundraisers. But instead of marching, like, for women with cancer or for leukemia or for, you know, those poor old people with cancer, I'd make it a real public issue, like we're going to march against BPA, or we're going to march against atrazine, because those things are going to kill us all. So make it a real thing that we don't just have some kind of sentimental idea of someone else, but that we all have something at stake there. So I think that's one thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing I might do is, you know, move towards stronger regulations of carcinogens, or make make uh, randomized control trials more transparent so that when doctors are putting you on, giving you one last round of experimental chemotherapy, they're very clear that it most likely won't work and that you don't have very much time left and you might want to spend it in some other way. I think there needs to be more transparency around who pays for those clinical trials. Um, yeah, so those kinds of things. That's more than two, but... Well, yeah, and I'll close this segment by basically saying that there's an amazing organization in D.C. that we partner with called Safer Chemicals Healthy Families, and we are working with them on challenging um, the uh, what's it called, the Toxic Substances Reform Act of 1976, mm-hmm. where something like only 2% of the 80,000 industry chemicals are tested for human safety, so there's your answer about why we're getting sick, and that it's not okay that the ethyl methyl, ethyl something in your couch cushions could give you leukemia and you don't know about that when your body's sleeping. So yeah, I'm totally right. sure what you said there. And, and you're right, regulatory and legislation is 
a definitive first step towards getting a grip on, like, the why. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry you have it. Let's help you. Let's help it suck a little less for you, which is kind of what we're about, to the let's try to make sure you don't get it in the first place and, and deal with it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's I think it's just all related. I that's what I you know keep trying keep ending up coming back to. It's all related how we how we've refused to see it as a causation issue, and then we also are loath to see it as a profit industry on the medical treatment side. Because who doesn't want to believe that medicine is only out to help us? If that's a right. scary proposition, right? Well. I uh, I really can't thank you enough for coming back on the show. Congratulations on multi-year survival of stupid cancer. Um, and uh, y- your book is fascinating, and I think you've made a new best friend than Maureen tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your new biggest friend. Yeah. All right. We've been talking to Dr. Lachlan Jane, Associate Professor of the Department of Anthropology at Stanford University. Her second book, Malignant, How Cancer Becomes Us, is on the bookshelves now on Amazon. Uh, check it out at malignant.us. Dr. Jane, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. Good luck, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fascinating. I told you you'd find her fascinating. Yes, it's, you it's were a, correct. It's a very deep conversation that kind of like when you look into a mirror, just looking in the mirror, and your brain just can't understand like what? I mean, start thinking about the universe and how tiny we are compared to the universe. Now I know how to keep you busy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like the Chinese. Get him Chinese <laughs> your toys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Kathleen, your thoughts on this? Can we cure cancer, or can we just like not die from it? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've I've thought about the whys, especially you know, getting in at the 35 years old. You think uh, I don't understand. Um, Maybe it was that cake I ate. Maybe I shouldn't have so much sugar. And then there's so many, everyone kind of throws a cure out at you. Oh, you have to go to the rainforest of Peru. You have to, you know, juice kale. Um, I don't know what causes it. I don't know if there will ever be a cure because there's so many different, every time they seem to get on top of something. I see it even with my own cancer when they thought that they had it under control and then it kind of manifests itself in this ugly, different way. So... Well, our board chairman, Dr. Leonard Sender, is part of a new society for adolescent neuro-oncology. It's like ASCO for young adults. Mm-hmm. And his whole argument is that cancer is a naturally occurring biological process, which no one denies. It's been around since evolution itself. It happens in animals. It's just there. And all animals are relatively healthy. That's the stasis of nature. We're the only species that messed all that up. Mm-hmm. So if cancer is naturally occurring, your body typically is just good at getting rid of it on its own with your immune system. The fact that when you get really old, your body gets weak and cancer happens in the elderly because it just happens because you're old. And certain people get it in different places and lifestyle is not even as much of a factor as just being old. So why do children get it? Why do teenagers get it? Why do people that are not old get any kind of cancer? What is it that is triggering our immune system to not function the way it should? And that young adult cancer is biologically different than adult and and geriatric cancer. And if you look at it as a different disease to start, then the environmental issues come into play more, more, um, more reasonably than someone who didn't grow up 
you know, like crawling on carpet fresh. By the way, they don't make that anymore, not a sponsor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I mean, even look in Long Island. Uh, there's Biasins. so hey, many. You got the wrong Long Island cancer, girl. Whew, oh, breast, breast cancer, cancer Island, yeah. Well, that's the first question that everyone asks me right. when they find out that I have can- oh, breast cancer. Right. And I go, no, 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 because that's yeah. the logical, especially you know, being a female, being young, living in Long Island. Right. Um, why are there such huge pockets of it? Where it's I the, live? the island has the largest per capita incidence of breast cancer in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they, the reason they think of it is because before uh, Levittown, uh, it was all agribusiness and farms and chemicals, uh-huh. and, and the water was polluted and the soils destroyed, and they really ruined Long Island when it was agribusiness for the city before the urban sprawl. Mm-hmm. And that Robert Moses, when he built Levittown, didn't really do the check if there's a Indian burial ground underneath <laughs> your house, you know, poltergeist thing. And everything's built on top of toxic sludge, and everything's seeping up and seeping down, and there's no environment. That's, anyway, I'm ranting, but it's like, is it really the environment stupid? And is it what we're eating, is it what we're breathing, and what can we actually um, I think there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. I've spoken to holistic doctors who have said, well, what was different in your mother's pregnancy with you um, than with your other siblings? And I said, oh, well, you know, my mother became diabetic with me. Oh, well, then that, 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 that's, that's your mom's the fault. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, isn't it always right. the mother's fault? Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know, I think, any more than my oncologist knows. Right. Well, this has been a very spirited show. And I'm, uh, you know, certainly not the end of the conversation, but again, the fact that we're exploring this, the young adult movement cares about not just having it suck a little less, but Mm -hmm. why are we getting cancer at this age when we already know that cancer happens naturally as you age, not as you age towards 40, but as you age towards (laughs) 90. Um, Anyway, in that case, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did. All right, Kenny Maury, now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 297th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick. That's Super Cancer. I'd like to thank our guest tonight, Kathleen Emmett, here live in studio, and Dr. S. Lachlan Jane. Next week's show, 298, a spotlight on the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults down in Baltimore. Our good friends here, join us next Monday when we speak to Ullman Cancer Fund President and CEO Brock Yetzo and uh, his program manager, Laura Scruggs, for an exclusive roundtable event highlighting the foundation, its programs, mission, and impact for young adults with cancer. Survivor Spotlight, I'm Stephanie Madsen, who I just met at the meetup in Colorado and Denver. She is amazing. She is the founder and blogger at Derailing My Diagnosis. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, folks. 
Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Monday, live at 8. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.